Introduction to Manchester Poetry, edited by James Wheeler. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Manchester Poetry, with an introductory essay, edited by James Wheeler. He that recalls the attention of mankind to any part of learning which time has left behind it, may be truly said to advance the literature of his age. Johnson London, Charles Tilt, Fleet Street Manchester, All Booksellers, 1838 To Lord Francis Edgerton, a patron and ornament of English literature. This volume is dedicated by the editor. Introductory Essay the task of writing an introductory essay, at no time very attractive, is one of peculiar difficulty and delicacy when the work to be ushered into the world consists of the productions of townsmen and those townsmen poets. On the one hand, an editor's reserve will be cavilled at if he say too little. On the other, his assurance will be chastised if he talk too loudly, so that between the two extremes, some prudence is requisite to guide him safely to the goal. Manchester poetry, exclaimed doubtless the majority of those who may chance to bestow a passing glance upon the book. Bless us, what a word on a title page is this! And, as if satisfied in their own minds that this same town cannot produce any good thing save only such as emanates from the spindle or the power loom, they indulge, it may be, in a slight laugh at the presumption of the editor, and go on their way rejoicing. It is, indeed, unfortunately the fact that, except in rare instances, the few scientific and literary men whom Manchester could boast have been content to hide their light under a bushel, passing from the stage of life without recording their title to any degree of fame beyond the immediate precincts of their own homesteads. As for popularity... Poor and content was rich and rich enough. They sought not the applause of the multitude. They knew that a venal criticism might be purchased, and aware of the worthlessness of fame so procured, they had, too, the philosophy to disregard it. Thus it is that strangers have weekly and daily visited the town, nay, are even yet visiting it, only as a great manufacturing depot. They have heard of its skilfulness in all manner of handicraft. Rumour has spoken of its inhabitants as a people whose merchants are princes, whose traffickers the honourable of the earth, and they have come up in a spirit of curiosity to inspect its spinning jennies and power looms, to take note of this apparatus or that cogwheel, and, exclaiming wonderful at every turn, have departed at last with the impression that Manchester is indeed the most mechanical of boroughs. But for any qualities intellectual or imaginative, not having dreamed of the possibility, they have not paused to inquire into the fact of their existence. Nor can we wonder. The antipathy of men of trade to the pursuits of literature is as ancient as the hills, and seems likely to endure as long. In the early days of commerce, men rose from their beds at daybreak, partook with their apprentices and workmen the homely meal of porridge from a common platter, set in the midst of a deal table, betook them to their toil till nightfall, 
then hie to the tobacco-clouded atmosphere of a tavern for their glass and gossip, and by nine o'clock were laid abed, dreaming off the fumes of their carousal. In such a state of society, literature was, of course, a luxury unknown and disregarded. But it is strange that in these later days, when the learned professions are crowded with the aspiring scions of commerce, and the Senate too often groans under the inflictions of counting-house eloquence, instead of finding an elevation of men's tastes correspondent with the growth of their means, the aversion to literary pursuits should have lost so little of its force. It is to be feared, indeed, that there are even yet men, and those among the most prosperous in the class of old-fashioned traders, who deem the coarse vulgarity and narrow apprehension of a mind uncultivated to be the best material whereof to frame a good tradesman, and though generally it is not now as once that the pilgrims of trade enter on their career without education, it yet seems to be deemed for the most part that the education of book should begin and end at school, or at least that took on prices, or the city article of a daily paper, is the only literature cognizable by a disciple of the counting-house. It is a curious phenomenon, too, in the history of the commercial communities of modern days, that the literary taste, discouraged in the outset of life, seldom gives any sign of vitality in the maturer days of men of this class. It is common to find those who, after a life of laborious industry, the latter part spent perhaps in sighing for a few short years between the grave and the desk, retire at length to enjoy their decline with some little splendour, rearing stately mansions and surrounding themselves with costly works of art, paintings, sculpture and bijouterie. Others may be seen working themselves slowly into the dignity of local potentates and surmounting the arduous summits of parochial oratory whilst, with not a few, the spirit of philanthropy and Christian beneficence, pent up in early life, bursts forth its sunset to fertilise and adorn the field of their respective neighbourhoods. But among this class, literature, if it have patrons, and it has a few, finds no disciples. There may be those who browse in half-awakened ease upon the sunny side of Parnassus, but there are none who, in the spirit of humble pilgrimage, attempt the arduous and barren heights whose pinnacle is the retreat of the muses. With these fair ladies, indeed, even the higher faculties of mind which trade and manufactures call into exercise seem to have no sympathy. Manchester has been the nursery of all those wonderful mechanists whose discoveries give birth to modern commerce and are now enriching the world. And yet, so far as our knowledge goes, None of these giant intellects ever allied themselves with other, and shall we say loftier, studies. Mechanical genius stands alone in the field of intellect, and so, likewise, the peculiar properties which characterise a Manchester man, whilst they exist not in other spheres, are rarely found linked with other high mental qualities. Despite all this, however, Malgré the impression which smoke and machinery may be supposed to have upon the brain, it is with no little pride that we can count over the names of those eminent men who in a former age have arisen from our population, who have enlightened the world with their genius, and who sank into their honoured rest with the sweet lullaby of fame upon their dying ear. 
it needs not that they should be enumerated. Suffice it that the renowned in science will not blush to enroll the name of a Henry among their archives, that the immortal in art will be only too proud to find the inspired liversiege of their number, and, if it were compatible with the design of this essay, to speak of those who are yet walking in our streets, and with whom we have yet the privilege of holding earthly converse, we would whisper into the ear of philosophy the name of Dalton, and demand if it be a slight thing to make boast of him. We would call a council of the poets, and present Charles Swain to the proudest in their ranks, and if there be any that are still sceptical, we would ask them to listen to his reception there. In some respects, therefore, Manchester may have little or no ground for complaint or lasting despondency. Great progress has been made since the days when Arkwright first accumulated a princely fortune, and then, in the maturity of life, set himself to learn to write. And hope, the immortal child of imagination and desire, sees in these tardy stages of cultivation bright harbingers of the future. At this time, indeed, Manchester owns, besides the Parent Society, the Literary and Philosophical Society, Dr. Dalton, President, various associations for the encouragement of philosophy, literature and the arts, which give promise to a prolonged existence. Music also is worshipped here with a true devotion. Painting has many friends, and sculpture is entering on the field of popularity. Among the members of the learned professions too, Manchester may rank men worthy of taking a high station with their countrymen, engaged in corresponding pursuits, so that there can be nothing in her dingy atmosphere inimical to the growth of intelligence. The names of Dr. Whitaker, the historian, and a poet too, though none of his works appear here, of Ferrier and White, need only to be mentioned to confirm these statements. If then, in the processes of nature, each development is but the foundation of some higher stage of organisation, so these evidences of awakening in one sphere of the intellect may be fairly regarded as the germs of other and loftier capacities. To this progression, everything which tends to bring congenial minds together cannot be but ancillary, and thus this humble book, designed to draw into friendly union the members of our little republic of letters, by first making them conscious of each other's existence. Knowledge new to some of them may not be without its lasting value. It is true that works concocted as it were from the brains of other men rarely rank high. Nor in ordinary cases can that literary reputation be said to have a very sure foundation which is based upon the wise saws of our neighbours. In plain words, books of selections, gems, beauties, aut quacunque alio nomine vocantur, are usually sneered at by the world. The editor, however, hopes to protect himself from illiberal criticism under the plea, and it has the merit of truth to uphold it, that Manchester poetry needed selection and reproduction to place the town fairly in the world's eye, and that such a view not the dishonest one of decking himself out in the gay colours of his friend's genius, prompted him to this undertaking. Perhaps of the poetry of Manchester, until these later years, little that is favourable could be said. It would seem as if, in this respect, the atmosphere had imparted somewhat of its dullness 
to the imagination of those who inhaled it. Hence, though Byram wrote somewhat voluminously, and was highly esteemed by Addison and Steele as a scholar and a poet, it is only in the nineteenth century, within some dozen or twenty years of the present time, that any pretensions have been made by Manchester writers to rank among the gifted of the earth. And even those claims, modest and well-founded as it is conceived they have been, are met at this day, as already has been shown, only with a contemptuous smile by most of the crowd of gentlemen, whose genius lies rather in the detection of an imperfect fabric than in the right appreciation of perfect poetry. In Byram's days, the smiles of the muses were monopolised by those who, having received a classical education, were thus enabled to write original verses with some degree of fluency, and to translate with considerably more. Rhymes became as plentiful as blackberries, and so that the ear was not offended by false metre, tolerable verses were considered tolerable poetry. The ephemeral reputation of an occasional scribbler in the newspapers or magazines of the present day would then have achieved for a man at least a ten years' celebrity, and to have written such stanzas as are now weakly rejected by the editor of even a provincial journal would have gained their author the patronage of a duke and the admiration of the town. Byram, it must be confessed, was not much superior to the class of elegant imitators, but if his verses were not at all times poetical, they had at least this advantage, that their vein was always one of instruction and morality. The same praise, but of a loftier character, is due to Miss Dewsbury, or rather Mrs. Fletcher. Like Mrs. Hemans, she was a domestic poet, her hand transcribing only what her heart composed. In all her poems there is a moral, and though, in some instances, a too near approximation to the style of her friend may be observable, yet her compositions breathe a spirit of deep religious feeling, unaccompanied by aught either of gloom or unnatural melancholy. The highest and truest eulogium which could be passed upon her writings, whether of prose or verse, would be to say that they gave a history of her life and her feelings. The one was but a reflection of the other. It was, as she has herself said, her heart's earliest wish one day to become a poet. How that wish has been gratified, let the world tell. She passed from amongst us ere we had yet learned to appreciate her genius, and it was only when she had ceased to sing that the world, and mainly her own townsmen and women, discovered how really musical were the warblings of her lyre. Of the other writers whose productions comprise a portion of the following pages, the editor would gladly prate a while, but it is a delicate matter to eulogise men, with many of whom we are in close alliance. And to speak in other terms than those of praise would be painful and unjust. Such of them as are already before the world are independent alike of praise and censure. Those who are not will perhaps thank us if we allow them and their works to stand upon their merits. One of the brotherhood, however, it would be a fault to pass by without mention. Reared in the rude lap of humble and laborious life, with fortune, it is to be feared, frowning upon him even from his youth, the tide of circumstances has so rolled on as to afford the individual to whom the editor is referring 
little reason to love the world or the world's laws. Without trenching upon memorials, now the earlier blotted out the better, it may wound no prejudice to state that in the troublous times of twenty years ago, this gifted person acted a conspicuous part, boldly avowing opinions honestly formed, if not wisely founded, and attesting his zeal and sincerity in the cause he espoused, not less by the firmness with which he suffered, than by his entire freedom from the mercenary and self-elevating aims which characterised too many of that day's reformers, and by the philosophy with which, when dangers were past and punishment had been patiently endured, he afterwards bore up against that last sad trial, worse than the bitterness of death, the ingratitude and cold-heartedness of his former associates. Whether or not time, which has cast some hoar-frost upon his locks, has also cooled the fervour of his well-meant patriotism, it is not for the editor to inquire. It concerns him not, save that as the arena of political controversy is one overgrown with thorns, and thick-strewn with records of the dire workings of human passion, it is a happy thing to think that those who were born for higher objects, and with nobler capacities, have fled from its desolate domains. Beyond this, neither the editor nor his readers have any concern with the politics of poets. Let the world, then, inquiring no further, be content to know that among the few whom Lancashire claims as her poets, none deserve a fairer garland than the lowly-minded Samuel Bamford. The editor has another and an equally grateful task to perform in the acknowledgement of obligation to the gentlemen whose writings constitute the bulk of this volume, for the courtesy with which they allowed him to levy contributions from their stores. It is his regret that the levies are necessarily so small, and that the limits of his book compel him to pass, without even mention, the names of many persons, as yet little known to the world, whose productions would have adorned this publication and done credit to the town. In one instance only, that of Mr. T. K. Hervey, who may rank perhaps with the Manchester poets, though none of his writings, the editor believes, date during his residence here, has the courtesy he otherwise has to be grateful for, been forgotten. Out of evil, however, good springs. The editor has devoted some of the pages originally designed for Mr. Hervey's poetry to a few stanzas, all that he could glean, from the pen of a master spirit just passed from amongst us. To the editor, the exchange is a satisfactory, as to his readers it will be a profitable one. He would have been happy if the efforts he has made to obtain some fragments of a more finished performance, which Dr. McCall is understood to have left behind him, had been successful. But obstacles were found in the objection felt by the friends of the deceased to violate his strongly expressed desire that the production should not go forth. If report speaks sooth, the loss to the world will not be slight should this injunction be permanently observed. Prestwich, December the 4th, 1838 End of Introduction